Well, good morning, everybody. Can I add my warm welcome to the welcome that's already been, been given to you? If you're with us for the first time, then uh, the survival kit for the next few minutes is the white bulletin, and if you open it up, you'll find an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. And you'll also, I think, be helped to have the green question sheet with you. This is the sheet that we use in our midweek Bible study uh, on the passage that we're looking at this morning. And uh, the Bible study happens at 7.30 in our home on Wednesday night. So I do hope you can join us for that. Before I pray, um, let me just say that we had a word from uh, Innocent Washimwa in Malawi uh, yesterday and um, mercifully his family have been preserved from the terrible cyclone that has affected that part of the world. But there are up to a million people who are homeless in Malawi at the moment and that includes some of his sisters. I don't know how many sisters Innocent has got but anyway, however many he's got, they're homeless. And this week we will try and put some sort of a gift together uh, to send help for him and his family. So do please pray for him and do please ask the Lord to bless whatever we're able to send through by way of help. But first, um, let us ask for God's help as we come to his word. Uh, Will you bow with me and let's pray. Our gracious God, you are so glorious that the heavens cannot contain you, and yet you have assured us that you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. And we pray that just as Jesus left the majestic glory of your heavenly throne to dwell among men, that you would come and dwell among us this morning by your Spirit, through your Word. We pray that your divine finger will help us as we try to read your Word, that your finger will point with great skill into our hearts, applying your word to each one of us individually. And most of all, we pray that as your word both humbles us and lifts us up with a great sense of gospel grace and joy, that we may enjoy fellowship with you as dearly loved children, enjoying fellowship with their Father, And these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning uh, with a quotation, and uh, you'll find it on the reverse of the green question sheet. Um, It comes from a book called God in the Wasteland by David Wells. Listen to what he says. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is like a ghost, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence Nevertheless, consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments 
no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. End quote. Well, David Wells is the research professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the United States. And no doubt his comments apply in the first instance to Christian culture in North America. But David Wells was born in Bulawayo in Zimbabwe and he was educated at UCT. And it seems to me that what he says here is a painfully accurate insight into the heart of many Christians and no doubt many churches in South Africa today. What he's saying, you see, is that we may know the great truths of the Gospel. We may know that God in his grace and mercy has made a way for us to be rescued from the consequences of our depravity through the cross of the Lord Jesus. We might enjoy learning about these things. We might even be able to share the gospel with impressive clarity to some of our friends. But so often there is an alarming gap between our theology and our living. Because what we say we believe hasn't really penetrated to the core of our being to the point where our lives reflect the message. And as a result, there are comparatively few people who've really taken to heart what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now that, I think, is a tragedy Uh, Why is it a tragedy? Well, one commentator puts it rather well when he says, Jesus did not commit the gospel to an advertising agency. He commissioned it to disciples. So if here at St Barnabas we want to be torchbearers together for Africa, if we really want to see the gospel spreading in Cape Town and really taking root in people's lives, well, we need more fully committed disciples. So what is actually holding people back from being fully committed disciples in the New Testament sense? Well, can I suggest that John chapter 6 crystallises the issue for us and begins to lead us towards an answer. Now as we come to this very familiar passage, I think it's worth noticing that there is a pattern in chapters 5 and 6 which is really important for our understanding of the message. Because both these chapters begin with a miracle or a sign Uh, And then what follows explains what the sign is really all about. So in chapter 5, we saw, didn't we, Jesus healing a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. And then in the rest of the chapter, we discovered that the sign 
was pointing to Jesus' authority in the new creation as the Lord of life and judgment. That's what our brother Amiah was praying about this morning. And now, chapter 6 begins with a very famous story, the uh, feeding of the 5,000. It is the fourth sign in John's Gospel. But we actually have to read the rest of the chapter in order to grasp the full significance of the sign. So our study this morning is really only the first step in the process and uh, if you want the total picture, you're going to have to come back for each of the next two Sunday mornings. But for for today, we're just looking at the first 15 verses under three simple headings. Number one, the offence of the sign. Number two, what the sign says about Jesus. And number three, what the sign means for us. So firstly then, the offence of the sign. Now one of the most interesting things about this miracle is that it has produced more controversy over the years than practically all the rest put together. So on the one hand, this is actually the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. And straight away, that's telling us that the early church saw this miracle as absolutely essential to a right understanding of New Testament Christianity. There was something about this particular event that the first generation of Christians did not want future generations to miss. Now it has been suggested that perhaps one of the reasons for this is the sheer number of witnesses who were there and saw what actually happened. John tells us that uh, 5,000 men were present and the word that he uses for men is gender specific and so some scholars have said that by the time you add in the women and children there might have been between 15 and 20,000 people who were there and saw what happened. Now of course that is an important factor but I don't believe it's the most important thing as we'll see in a moment. On the other hand, it seems that this sign has been more offensive to liberal scholars than all the rest. And so they've been working over time, over the years, to come up with different rational explanations for what they say happened. Let me mention two of the best known so that you'll recognise them if you come across them and you'll be able to knock them out of the park. Firstly, uh, there are those who have said that far from being a supernatural event, this was actually a miracle in human hearts. So, uh, what really happened, they say, is that Jesus said to his disciples, now look here, we're going to set an example. Uh, Here is this young boy who's willing to share his packed lunch with others. And we're going to do the same thing. Uh, We're going to take out the packed lunch that we brought with us this morning and share it amongst ourselves and with our neighbours. And then, so the story goes, when everybody else saw that, they were put to shame by their own selfishness. 
and slowly everyone produced the packed lunches that they had been surreptitiously hiding in their cloaks and shared them with the people sitting next to them. And so in the end, there was more than enough to go round. But of course the problem with that is that it ignores what John has written and it makes the story into a fraud. John's message is that 5,000 men were fed from five small loaves and two small fish. In verse 14, please notice, he tells us quite clearly that this was a miraculous sign. So, to accept that rational explanation is to cast a very dark shadow over John's truthfulness and integrity. The second explanation that the the liberals have put forward is to suggest that what we've actually got here is a preview of Holy Communion. So, there was no miracle of creation. Uh, Rather, Jesus took the boy's offering and gave everybody a tiny weeny piece. Now, of course, there are two immediate problems with that. First of all, how on earth are we to explain Philip's remark in verse 7? Please look at it. Philip says, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one, notice the phrase, to have a bite. Now, quite obviously, eight months' wages would buy far more than one small boy's packed lunch. And yet, Philip says, even that would not be enough to give everyone so much as a bite. And of course, the second obvious problem with that explanation is that it doesn't help us understand the twelve baskets. What are we going to do with those, the twelve baskets of leftovers? So can I say that these so-called rational explanations really are the counsel of desperation? And I mention them simply to make you aware that this particular sign has generated a considerable amount of heat amongst unbelievers over the years. And what we need to do is try and understand why it is they find it so offensive. So that's our first point. And it leads us secondly into what the sign says about Jesus. Now, if you were with us at the very start of our series in January, you may remember that the the first miracle uh, Jesus performed was at a wedding at Cana in Galilee, where he turned water into wine. Right at the very end of that story, in John chapter 2, verse 11, you don't need to look at it, but John added a little footnote where he tells us about the purpose of Jesus' signs. He says this, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So the signs or the miracles of Jesus are not gratuitous displays of power. No, they're given to reveal his glory to tell us who Jesus really is, and in so doing, to generate faith. Now, with that in mind, here in chapter 6, 
there's a very important clue that helps us to tune in to the particular aspect of the glory of Jesus that is revealed in the feeding of the multitude. Because in verse 4, please notice this, John says, the Jewish Passover feast was near. So, as that massive crowd began to arrive on the scene, what was in their minds was the great annual celebration when the whole nation looked back and remembered the way that the Lord had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and kept them alive in the desert. But because you and I can't remember it as clearly as they did, we need to keep one finger in John chapter 6 and turn back to Exodus 16 on page 57. Exodus chapter 16, page 57. And uh, we're in the left-hand column, reading from verse 1. Page 57, Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And of course, as we then go on and read through the Exodus account, we discover that the Lord continued to provide this bread from heaven throughout their 40-year pilgrimage in the desert. And a desert, of course, is a place of death, isn't it? Can you see, therefore, when we come to John chapter 6 and we find Jesus feeding a multitude from five small loaves and two small fish with 12 baskets of leftovers, what we're seeing is Jesus demonstrating that he is the one who sustains life in a place of death, just as God did for Israel all those years before. Now the rest of the chapter confirms that that is precisely how Jesus meant the sign to be understood. He expects us to make the connection between this miracle and God's supernatural provision for his people all those years before. Now surely, that is the real reason that this sign has stirred up so much opposition over the years. Because Jesus does what only God can do And people who are hostile to God simply can't deal with it. So they have to find some other explanation, however fanciful and ridiculous. 
it might be. Well, please come back to John, because the third thing we're going to consider this morning is what the sign means for us. Now, I began today by saying that if we want to see the gospel spreading in Cape Town, that is only going to happen as people respond to the challenge of committed discipleship. And that challenge is sketched out for us in verses 5 and 6. Please come with me to verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So the question that Jesus asks of all his disciples, both then and now, is this. How are you going to meet the needs of the world? Good question. Because you see, what happens is we look at all the brokenness and the lostness and the spiritual darkness in our homes, in our communities and in our churches and the scale of the task is literally breathtaking. And so what happens is, like Philip, we make a quick, human, rational calculation and we say, well, it's hopeless. It can't be done. I mean, the job's simply too big. And Jesus says, think again. Look at the small boy. I find it very interesting that the little boy appears right in the middle of John's account. That is a a standard Hebrew uh, literary device. He's introduced in verse 9. And like a painter who draws our eye into the very centre of the painting, so John wants you and I to look at the little child. And as he stands there with Andrew and his barley loaves and fish, he is a picture of complete inadequacy in the face of an overwhelming need. For a start, that throughout history, barley has always been seen as the bread of the poor. Uh, So the writer Samuel Johnson once said, uh, he was writing in the 18th century, but I don't think things have changed very much, he said, barley is a grain which in England is fed to horses and in Scotland is fed to people. And won't you notice in verse 9 that John repeats the word small. The loaves were small. The fish was small. So you see, in human terms, this boy's packed lunch is completely inadequate. And yet, of course, in verse 12, they all had enough to eat. 15,000 people. And they gathered up the leftovers and filled 12 baskets. Now, you see, the point of the story is this, that in the hands of Jesus, the inadequate 
becomes adequate. The insufficient becomes sufficient. And the impossible becomes possible. Now, why does the Lord Jesus want us to know that? Well, because God has decreed that the way that our spiritually hungry world will be fed is through the sacrifice of individual Christians bringing their resources to Jesus and putting them into his hands. That is the way that God has determined to save the world. And this miracle, you see, is given to teach us that Jesus has the power to completely transform what looks to us to be ordinary and inadequate into something wonderful and something satisfying. One of the more uh, readable commentaries on John's Gospel, there aren't many of them, but one of the more readable ones is by Bruce Milne in the Bible Speaks Today series, and I've included what he has to say about this on the back of the green question sheet. He says this, Our instinct is to put ourselves down and to demean, that means to diminish, to diminish what we have to give, particularly when measuring it against raw human need. But Christ is thankful for us. And if we will believe sufficiently in his gifting to trust him with our whole selves, he will take us break us as need be and offer us to the Father as in his hands the miracle is repeated the resource multiplied and a multitude fed. That's rather good, isn't it? There are so many examples in history that we could think of, we can't possibly mention them all. But in the 1930s, whilst um, America was in the grip of the the Great Depression, uh, a small farming community prayed that God would raise up an effective preacher to bring God's message of hope to a world in which hope was really rather difficult to find. Now listen, they were only praying. But from that very community... God raised up Billy Graham. And as you know, Billy Graham died last year, but by the time he retired, Billy Graham had preached to more than 215 million people in 185 countries. And if you include the number of people that he reached through the media, through his videos and so on, then his lifetime audience is estimated at more than 2 billion People. About the same time in London, an old lady had uh, some pounds, just a few pounds, uh, sitting in an old biscuit tin. It was only a few pounds. But that money was used to launch a Christian publishing company called InterVarsity Press. And IVP today is the leading publisher for Christian books for university and college students throughout the world. Now friends, 
Can we please look again at what we have to offer God? Can we begin to think and pray and imagine what God might do with it? It might be sharing your testimony in church. We encourage that in Family Focus. Or perhaps just with a friend over a cup of coffee. Now that may not sound like much to you. But you see, God may have already decided that he's going to use your testimony to save somebody who ends up doing pioneer missionary work in the Middle East. Now, if you knew that this morning, wouldn't you do it? Or it might be uh, giving up some time to help a leader establish an aftercare ministry for children here at St Barnabas. Sounds like a burden. Sounds like a lot of extra work. But you see, God may have already decided to use that ministry to raise up a child who goes on in adult life to evangelise a new generation of young adults in South Africa. If you knew that this morning, wouldn't you be rushing through there? Hmm? My friend, what are the resources that God has entrusted you with which you could offer back to him but which up until this morning you've been thinking are completely inadequate. As you read John 6, 1-15 again as I hope you will do later today won't you look at those resources again? And here's a rather lovely detail. Please notice that Jesus is no man's debtor. Because, you see, although the the boy gave up his small lunch, having no idea whatsoever what Jesus was going to do with it, that small boy ended up eating far more than if he hadn't. Because, of course, he was amongst those who had more than enough to eat. Can you see that the point of this story is that Jesus is looking for disciples who will put everything they have into his hands and who trust that what they're going to have in the end will be far, far better than everything they gave away. Is that you, my friend? I sincerely hope it is. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we we thank you that everything in heaven and on earth is yours. And yet you've entrusted particular resources and gifts to each one of us here this morning. And you've appointed us as stewards of those gifts, that we might use them for the good of others and for the glory of your name. And so we thank you for our minds, for our knowledge, for our time, for our energy, for our skills, for our experience, for our finances, for our contacts, and so much more besides. Father, forgive us for the many times when 
we have used these gifts exclusively for our own benefit. And Lord, if we consider our gifts to be really rather modest and even inadequate, help us to remember that when we bring our gifts to you, that you are able to completely transform them so that they can perfectly satisfy the needs of a hungry world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.